0: Okay. So who was here last week? Who is ready to recite all the Bible verses that they memorize from last week? Okay, um, I know that more of you, um, more of you took that challenge than you're letting on. Um, but I have a maybe just a little reminder. From last week about where we were in God's word. We were in Matthew chapter 4 last week. You remember the temptation of Jesus? And about how the the when we when it was recorded, the temptation of Jesus was recorded there in Matthew chapter 4. Um, it was the it was the thing that was right before the public ministry of Jesus. So it was that preparation thing, you know? It was the thing that came before the big thing and um, often in our lives uh, we we do experience pretty significant periods of um, hardship, of trial, maybe even of temptation right before God is about to unleash something large in our life Uh, or there's about to be tremendous opportunity for something large and Jesus' example is no different here um, you know, he was tempted uh, three times by the enemy in the desert and uh, three times uh, defeated that temptation or at least had a re- response for temptation. So um, listen, what we came away with last week was that without a doubt, 100%, our, our weapon against the power of temptation is not, is not our own willpower, Right? How many times have you have you maybe faced temptation, faced uh, either um, a, a pattern of habitual sin, some sinfulness in your life that you're struggling against, and your response was like, "Man, I I just need to be stronger. I just need to have more willpower. I just need to like pull up my boots, you know, like put the tool belt on and like get to work, being strong." being powerful, having an iron will uh, to, to defeat temptation. And, and it may work, you know, once, twice, three times, whatever the case may be. But uh, eventually, the reality is, is that when we rely solely on our own willpower as a defense or to defeat temptation, uh, we will inevitably lose. Because even Jesus... Even Jesus himself, Jesus himself's number one, um, number one defense against temptation was not his own, well, hey, I'm the son of God, I have, like, I've got willpower for days and weeks and months. No, his, his number one response in the face of temptation was to use the word of God, not as a defensive weapon, but as an offensive weapon to repel the enemy. Three times Jesus was tempted, and three times Jesus replied with, uh, with Scripture, with the Word, right? And it seems there um, that Jesus' recollection of Scripture, his ability to recall Scripture in that moment was primary and necessary to his ability to defeat the power of temptation as he was face-to-face with. With it, and so you and I, as we go about our lives, as we seek to walk in holiness with God, as we we don't want to fall to the power of temptation, we should take that as a as a lesson that when we saturate our minds, when we saturate our hearts, when we saturate our lives with the Word of God, when we when we make it a part of who we are, when we begin to memorize it, so that so that its its responsiveness in our lives is almost immediate. We, uh, we begin to fight the power of temptation with a tool that can truly defeat it, the Word. So we, we looked at uh, just a few examples of Scripture that we could maybe uh, memorize if we had certain, or like in certain situations, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, right? This is one that Jesus used. We talked about last week, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? It's, a, it's about trusting in God, not just about food, right? It's not just about eating. This is about, about trust. Who do, who do I put my trust in? Who provides for me? Where, where is my security when all life is falling apart? What it, where is the rock that I'm standing on? What is the unmovable thing that I am? Tethered to right, we do not trust. Um, uh, we lo- we won't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Anyone remember what the second one was? From correct Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Right when we are in patterns of in patterns of um, anxiety or. Or, or stressed or were overwhelmed with circumstances, right? Philippians 4:6 through7, do not be anxious about anything but in everything, with Thanksgiving, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guide your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? When, ang- when anxiety rushes in, when stress rushes in, when fear rushes in, we, um, we will faithfully and with thanksgiving present our requests to God. And It says the peace of God. This is a promise of Scripture, right? The peace of God which goes beyond any explanation. Goes beyond all understanding, right? When, when Paul says, it transcends the peace of God, which transcends understanding. I don't know. How, how could I possibly, in the midst of all my anxiety and all my fear and all of my stress, come to a place of peace? I don't know how that, that seems just like such a foreign concept to me. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's like the peace of God, it transcends our understanding. It goes beyond what we believe is can naturally happen, right? And it and it and it, and it girds or or um, protects the peace of God, which trans, uh, transcends all understanding. Will will guard our hearts and minds against that stress and fear and anxiety. And then finally, First uh, John chapter one, verse nine. This came out of our forgiveness series, of course where, um, you know, the, the hardest person, who is the hardest person in your life to forgive? Who is it? It's me, right? Well, not me. I hope not me. <laughs> the hardest person in my life to forgive is myself. We often, we often struggle the most significantly in life to forgive ourselves, and we live in, in tremendous shame and, and and guilt and, and and condemnation over over what we have done and what we have said and the things that we think and so it may be it may be easy for us to extend forgiveness to someone else but but oftentimes we carry around with us the identity of a condemned person the identity of shame the identity of guilt and we we, we want to we pick that thing up every week, and we want to we we continue to allow it to, to grow on us. And, and what the Word of God says, right, the promise of God is that um, if we confess those sins, if we confess the things that are bringing us guilt and shame and condemnation, that, that He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, so that so that the identity that is now that is now um, that is now uh, imputed to us because of Jesus Christ is one of righteousness. And he takes the identity of Jesus. God does, and he it's almost like he picks it up, and it, it's an identity transplant, right? Because God is faithful and just. That when we confess our sins, he forgives us of our sins. He, he purifies us from all unrighteousness. We are given a new name. No longer, no longer Cameron, but now son. Right? No longer Jessica, but now daughter. We are, we are a child. The identity is made new. And so in periods of time where I am tempted to place my trust, my hope, my security in someone or something or someplace else, I do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's all I need. That's all I need. When when the enemy seeks to remind me of my guilt, of my shame, condemn me in my sin, in the decisions that I've made, in the words that I've said, in the things that I have done. I have confessed my sins, and the Lord is faithful and just to forgive me of all my sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And we begin to, we begin to pluck out the weeds of the lie the seeds of lie of deceit that the enemy plants and replace them with seeds of truth from God's word and allow those seeds of truth to grow and we continue to water them right and fertilize them by by using it by by using them by turning them over and over and over and over in our lives until they create um, not just a new identity in us but a new pattern of living and thinking So, kind of in the next uh, few weeks in this kind of officially unofficial Lenten season, uh, we're just talking about the ways in which God uh, prepares us and and what he prepares us for. And that was how, uh, last week was how Jesus was being prepared for his earthly ministry and, 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 and faced temptation and how how we will also face temptation as God is uh, preparing us for the next season of life. Um, who, who here would consider themselves, like, okay, when, you, when someone asks you the question, all right, do you want to hear the good news first, or do you want to hear the bad news first? So who, he, who here is a good news first person? Who here is a bad news first person? Okay, all right, so give me the bad news first, and then we're going to end. That's interesting. Uh, And then we're going to end with the good news. Um, If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. Is right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. One of the very first things that Mark sought um, fit to record about the life of Jesus. Verse 14, he says, After John, John the Baptist, that is, was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. And one of the primary messages of Jesus, as he traveled around and preached, one of the primary one of the primary messages of Jesus as he traveled around and preached was not a was not a message of um, you know. Uh, do this, do that, you know, kind of like a moral, ethical, I'm going to teach you how to be a good person. I'm going to teach you, like, here's 101 ways to live your best life right now here in this moment, right? The primary message of Jesus everywhere that he went was, hey, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Repent. Repent and believe the good news. Here's a warning. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. It's coming. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus was kind of a good news and bad news person first, right? Hey, the kingdom of God is near. Right? If you're living in sin and walking away from God, that's bad news. Right? The kingdom of God is near. If you're regularly repenting and turning to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and seeking to walk in holiness every day uh, with uh, with uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, that's good news. <laughs> the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is near. All right, and so uh, we can certainly play both of these, but it seems like Mark, at least, was kind of a bad news person first because um, in verse 14 we we get to the the part of like um, that that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of God but the very first part of verse 14 was not not such good news. Uh, Mark says after John was put into prison Jesus went out and began to proclaim good news. Now I don't know about your friends I don't know about your cousins, right, because John the Baptist and Jesus were supposedly cousins, right? I don't know about your friends or your cousins. I don't know how well you like your cousins or don't like your cousins. I don't know. It may be for you really good news if they get put in prison. It may be for you really bad news if they get, if they get put in prison. But, but regardless, right, that, that, that Jesus' cousin has just been put in prison and that Jesus sees fit, even in that moment, to go out and to begin proclaiming what Mark describes and what Jesus describes as good news. I got great news, guys. I got great news. And it wasn't as if Jesus and John weren't close or they had kind of like shirt tail cousins and hadn't really been in touch for a number of years and weren't really didn't really have like kind of an intimate friendship or relationship because um, right before in Mark's gospel in between verses 9 and 13 We get the account of Jesus himself going to John the Baptist and saying John I want you to baptize me in the river Baptize me in the river for uh, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins And so it's obvious that they had a close connection a mutual respect and love for One another and and even though John was put in prison there was still um, adequate uh, I don't know motivation for Jesus to go out and preach the good news What could what could be so good about the situation? What what could possibly be so positive? In a situation such as this, see, there is always um, there is always perspective to be had. It's not likely that John that Jesus saw the John's imprisonment as a good thing, or that he did not care about it at all. Uh, but the perspective that could be had or that we could learn here from this is that um, things can appear things can appear to be going all wrong things can appear uh, to be falling completely apart things can appear to be disintegrating before you uh, before your very eyes or in the lives of your loved ones those around you right and there is still a place for news that is good. There is still a perspective that extends beyond the, the current situation. I mean, think, about the, think about the most, like, just the, the ugliest, baddest, either like, relationship or circumstance or um, that, that you've been in in the recent, like, year. And the thing that was the ugliest to you, that was like the most just like, oh, this is horrible. This is, um, this is such a bad situation. You know, you know what makes situations, you know what makes bad situations bad? Is that we often think that bad situations, uh, bad situations are really bad because while we're in the midst of them, we, we, um we very seldomly see life as it exists beyond the situation that we're currently in right so we only have perspective we only have eyes to see the thing or the place that god has us in or that we are experiencing right now in the moment. It seems next to impossible for us to grab onto a perspective that is larger than the thing that we are experiencing right now. Maybe the the uh, maybe there is a, a a a difficulty with your kids, right? Maybe you maybe you're you're, you're parenting a very very obstinate or or difficult child. And in the midst of your obstinacy and difficulty with that child, in the midst of the, the pain that that is causing in their life, and then in response, or then in like overflow, your life, and, and not seeing any way out of that and, and forecasting a bunch, of, a bunch of futures for them, right? But maybe what it is, um, maybe just as an example, what it is communicating is an inward sense of drive and strength of personality that they have, an, obstin- some, an obstinacy that they will carry forward when they are faced with significant temptation or trial later in life, that they will need just such an obstinacy to face. Or maybe when we're experiencing a difficulty in our marriage and our commitment to one another is being tested our commitment to one another is being bent and shaken that what is being built in the relationship at that time is exactly the strength that will be needed to help you through sickness or loss later in your marriage what i'm saying is this is that there is always there is a right now perspective and there is a forever perspective and we have an uncanny ability to allow our minds to get stuck in a right now perspective and for good reason because life is difficult and life is often painful and circumstances seem to overwhelm and so It becomes um, overwhelming to think of, how will this next thing be okay? How can everything be all right when everything feels like even in the moment it is all wrong? But even Jesus, I think, recognized this dichotomy that there is a time for difficulty and there is a time for good news. Because um, when he, uh, in in our scripture for this morning, in the gospel of uh, Mark, Jesus comes and he says after, or Mark says after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And the first words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark is this, the time has come. The time has come, he said. You know what we can really infer by Jesus saying that the time has come? Is that there is a time when it hadn't come, right? That 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 there was that there was a time of hopelessness, that there was a time of pain, that there was a time of despair, that there was a time of looking around, wondering, waiting, when is this slavery going to be over? When is this pain going to be through? When is this situation going to change? When is God going to show up? That there was a time. That there was a, that there was a break in the circumstances that we, that we were in, that we thought were going to last forever, but now they're not lasting forever because Jesus comes on the scene in verse 15 and says, the time has come. Now the time is here. And he said these words. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, um, what we see here—if you had to—if you had to guess, what was the thing that Jesus spoke of more than anything else in all four Gospels that we have? What would you say? Like the thing that that the like. This is the main thing that Jesus talked about. You look at all the Gospels. You make all your lists. What was the main thing that Jesus just talks about over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again? What would you say? Take some guesses. Peace? Okay. What else? Love. Repentance. Forgiveness. I didn't hear that one. Believe. Do not worry. Do not worry. They're all great examples, right? Things that Jesus talked about, things that we see in the New Testament, right? But by far, without even without without even um, without even anything being close, right? The number one thing that Jesus talked about in the New Testament was the the kingdom of God. 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 You read, through the, you read through some of the Gospels and you're going to see Jesus talk about in many of the parables, the kingdom of God was like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God. Shame on me in all of my like years as a pastor. I'm not sure I've ever like, preached a series or really dove into like what does Jesus say about the kingdom of God so as I was preparing this week uh, for this and coming across this par- uh, this passage and reading and praying and being like the kingdom of God the kingdom of God like I think maybe in the late summer early fall we'll do a we'll do a, uh, a sermon series on the kingdom of God what is the kingdom of god and what does it mean but 163 times in the new testament 163 times i'm sorry not in the new testament 163 yeah in the new testament 163 times in the new testament the kingdom of god the kingdom of god is like and the in the word that's used for that phrase is is this word right here it's a greek word basilia. and i don't always give you guys Greek lessons, and I don't intend to give you a Greek lesson. I'm not a Greek scholar, right? But, I think it's important for us to understand, like, don't don't you think, like, maybe it's important if Jesus, like, was all about it that we understand the word that he used and what it meant as he was speaking it, right? Then uh, The word basilia means, literally, the rule or authority of God. So when we talk about what the kingdom of God is, or what the, the kingdom is. We're talking about um, not, a, not necessarily a physical place or location. Like a king has a kingdom and a castle uh, and lands. But we're, we're, we're talking about the authority and dominion of God's rule. The authority and dominion of God's rule. And so when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. His intention was to speak of the authority, the rule, the dominion, and power of God. Now, does that mean that in this moment, like if Jesus says, it's near, right? Meaning, not yet here. Does that mean that that, that there is um, that, that God has somehow um, He has no power or He has no rule or He has no dominion? Of course not, right? We're dealing here with this concept that we've talked about before here. I know we've talked about it before, right? And we're also um, we're also hearkening back to something that we just talked about. We're talking about A reality that already exists right and that is not yet fully realized right so when we talk about the kingdom of God the rule or the power or the authority of God we're we're talking about something that already exists God is in control God has ultimate authority. God has ultimate rule and power. That is a that is a general and that is a general principle of God's character that he is sovereign in all things. However, you and I, right? We're over here and um, we feel like, man, you know, uh, my f- my life kind of feels a little out of control. My life kind of feels like um, there's no rule <laughs> or power or authority or dominion of God. I look around the world and I I see things that feel and look and seem like they're way outside of the boundaries of, what it would be if God was like ruling and in authority and in dominion and in power. And so how do we reconcile these two things? Well, the answer to reconciling those two things is that we hold them in sacred tension, knowing that the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus was to come, right? To bridge the gap between the already here and the not yet here and say, hey, look, guys. The not yet is coming. It's coming. The kingdom of God is coming. Get yourselves ready. Repent and believe the good news. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. ready." And then he used this phrase, a phrase that we have come to, um, that has become analogous with Christianity and Scripture. When he says, repent and believe the good news. The gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, many of the uh, Many New Testament writers use the phrase good news and gospel um, in the same way, right? They, they come from the same Greek word. Um, euangelion is the name of the, is the Greek word for gospel. It's used 77 times in the gospel. It means good news or gospel. Um, but this is important. Uh, I'm praying that this gives us a little bit of understanding of what Jesus meant when he spoke of the gospel. The term or the word uh, "euangelion" is not a was not a like uh, Jesus made it up. Was not a, was not a word that was like a word that he was just going to use to describe the message that he was bringing. Oh, like my story, my message. Um, I'm going to call it the good news. I'm going to call it the gospel, and it's just going to be synonymous with me. It actually had a really strong usage already in um, Greek and Roman culture, and it was used in uh, it was used as a technical term or a technical military term for news of victory. So, what would happen is that um, if a if a Roman colony or um, a, a particular part of the Roman Empire was out to war, out on conquest, they would not, um, you know, they, it's not like you, they could text, hey, we won the war, we'll be back in a few months, right? We're on the... We're on the train back. You know, we're going to get there. But what they would do is they would, they would want to make sure that when the army came back into the city, that there was appropriate fanfare and celebration for the victory that had been won by the soldiers. And so they would send a messenger ahead of the rest of the army. And that messenger would have, would be carrying a spear decorated and wrapped in laurel. Their head crowned. A palm branch waving around as a sign of victory. They would walk into the city gates, be given a place of prominence in the city court, and they would declare in these words, We are victorious. We are victorious. The literal definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are victorious in Jesus. That the the message that Jesus came to preach was a message of victory. It was a message of conquest. The question that we may be asking ourselves that I've often asked myself is then if, if the gospel is all about Victory, then why do I feel like I live in a perpetual state of defeat? If the ministry of Jesus is all about victory, if the life of Jesus was all about victory, if the preaching of Jesus was all about victory, then why am I living in a constant state of being defeated? I believe like many other things in life that our eyes and our heart and our minds, our spirit, whatever always gets magnetized towards the things that are really easy for us to digest and receive and accept and we, we tend to gloss over or forget or put to the side the, the part of what's good right? That comes because of something hard that we did. Right? How many? How many know? How many people know that um, that all good things usually come at the end of difficult decisions, circumstances, life changes, or choices. Right. And what Jesus says, right? What Jesus says pushes victorious living into our lives. The kingdom of God is near. So, since it's coming, right? Do this. Repent. Repent. Why do I live so defeated? Repent. I just want to experience the victory of Jesus in my life. Repent. Why 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 am I, why do I live so powerlessly all the time? Repent. And believe in your victory. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe that that Jesus has been victorious. I am victorious. We are victorious. The cry of the gospel in our lives is made complete by repentance that we will not experience we will we will not experience the the we will not experience the power of victory we will not walk in the reality of victory until we repent The word repentance here, again, this is like Greek lesson day. The word repentance is the word metanoia, which means not just a, hey, do different things, make different decisions, decide something else. But the word metanoia means to have an actual change of your mind. A change of your mind, a change of direction, uh, no longer walking towards sin but deciding to turn my back on I'm going to change my mind about what I want. I'm going to change my mind about what is important. I'm going to change my mind about the way that I live and I no longer I no longer want that. Repent and believe that you are victorious in Jesus. This is not a this was not a side issue or a side message for Jesus. It was core to what he preached and desired. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus said that, I have not come to call the righteous, but I have, I have come to call sinners to repentance. We are listen we are powerless against sin. When we when we power up in ourselves asserting our own kingdom but we are victorious. We are victorious over sin when we repent and believe that in Jesus Christ we are victorious. Sometimes I think we, I'm not going to talk about we, I talk about me. Sometimes um, sometimes I wish that the road to or the process of experiencing victory over sin, experiencing victory over anger. Um, experiencing victory victory over greed. Um, experiencing, uh, victory over, you name it. What do you want to experience victory over? Or sometimes I sometimes I wish, um, in my life that the things I wanted to experience victory over, that there was a really long, drawn out. Process of needing to do X, Y, and Z in this um, order over a long period of time, and um, and 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 having having going through lots of different steps to get to that, it be it's a lot more palatable for me to believe that my my sin is so deep, my my defeat is so. Um, horrible, that it's going to take something else other than me saying, I am defeated without you, Jesus. I, I repent of my striving. I, I repent of my sin. I believe in your victory, and I believe that your victory has become my victory. Because the simple things are almost always the most difficult to believe. The simple things are almost always the most difficult to allow to get into our hearts. The, the communion elements that are um, here in front of us this morning are simple, right? There's nothing, there's nothing complex about them. There are things that you and I maybe see on even a daily basis: bread and a cup. But for um, but for us, these simple things hold tremendous significance because of what they, uh, because of how they've been used, and because of what they symbolize. We use symbols almost daily in life. Jesus used symbols in just about every time he would teach or speak. He would use symbols. We sometimes call them parables, right? Here's a story or a, or a thing over here. It's meant to communicate this thing over here, right? And these things are like a living parable lying before us on this table. So when Jesus met with his disciples in an upper room and he took a loaf of bread, right, he gave thanks to his heavenly father for the bread and then he probably broke off pieces of the bread and he passed it to his disciples who were sitting on his right and on his left saying, take and eat of this bread, all of you. I want you to think of it this way. This is like my body, which will be broken for you. And then Jesus took a cup, and he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup. And then he gave the cup to his disciples in a similar fashion. Drink, Drink from this cup, all of you. Uh, when you drink of this cup, I want you to be reminded that this is like my blood which has been poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. After I'm gone, do it again. In remembrance of me. And do it again. And do it again. And do it again. And do it again. <laughs> Right? I don't know about you, but I need I need one of those gospel messengers uh, to walk into the city of my life every day and be like, "Hey, remember, you are victorious." Hey, hey, remember, um, Jesus has defeated your sin. Hey, hey, remember, hey, remember, hey, remember, hey, remember, the body of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent of your sins and believe in your victory. Repent of your sins and receive what Jesus has offered to you in himself. And so here we are before the table with an opportunity to remember but maybe an opportunity to receive For the first time, the victory that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. You do not need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a member of any church in order to receive communion with us this morning. You need only to come forward in faith, desiring to receive from Jesus forgiveness of your sins in a spirit of repentance desiring to live in the victory that jesus christ offers you we take communion here uh, by coming through the center aisle you can come out from your pews come in uh, the center aisle or rip off a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup i would invite you to stay and pray you would like um, uh, I will be around to pray with you if you so desire there are some other people here who will also pray with you if you um, if you so desire uh, if you have a, a, a gluten intolerance we do have some uh, gluten free wafers up here for you uh, they're in a bowl on the table just let whoever know whoever is serving you know and they'll be happy to serve you those as well Um I've got asked the question lately a few times, can my kids receive communion? Can they, you know, they don't really, they don't really understand what it means, so I didn't know if it was okay if they came up and, and got it. Hey, look, like, I'm going to be honest with you, um, I don't really understand the depth of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for me either. I don't, I don't really understand the 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 magnitude of the broken body of Jesus the shed blood of Jesus that 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 I receive what Jesus has to give me long before I have any actual understanding of what it is it is a it is a gift God, Jesus went to the cross long before anyone understood Jesus offered himself to us long before we had capacity to intellectually understand what was going on, to put the theological points in the right order. Jesus offers himself to us all. So yes, your kids can absolutely celebrate communion with us. Uh, I'm going to ask Jess to come up and uh, help me serve this morning. And then I'll have the worship team come up and then invite the rest of you forward.